Oh, hi, listener. I didn't see you there. You know, it's probably because this is a podcast, a purely audio medium. Say, since I have you here, why don't you join us as we get lit and discuss Herbert West, Reanimator, by H.P. Lovecraft. All right, I'm going to check this out on Amazon and place order. (laughs) (laughs) It's an excellent sting right there. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) What's there? No, no one's going to be able to pay attention to the discussion. They're just wondering what you ordered. What was it? I want to ask, but I just, I love, I love the mystery. If you wait until the end, you find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in after the credits. <laughs> hey, everybody. This week, the gentleman read a little story called Herbert West Reanimator, written by H.P. Lovecraft. It was originally published in a publication called Homebrew in 1922. It's a short tale about two college friends that are working on a serum to reanimate the dead. So if that piques your interest, keep listening, because here we go. I didn't ever catch the narrator's name. Did anybody note that? It, it never said. Yeah, it never said. It, and there's no information given about him at all. There's no descriptors or anything. It's it's completely purposefully, I think, open, open-ended. There's really no hint at all other than this guy is also a medical doctor, which you really only know because he attended the same medical school and got his, the same degree with Herbert West. Which, fun fact... The Miskatonic University that they always mention in H.P. Lovecraft stories. This is the first mention of that university in his universe. Hmm. Yeah. So he's definitely world building at this point in his career. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted more world building out of Lovecraft. I always felt like like Conan before it, like it's or I guess Conan's after this, that it, it it's just kind of by the seat of their pants. Like, you know, they don't they don't care if it is consistent with previous stories. There's a certain amount of consistency because it's in their heads, but the author's head, but uh, there's no intentional consistency. It definitely, I think these guys that write serials, they're kind of, if you can imagine writing paycheck to paycheck, so they don't know if this one's going to be a hit or not. It's really just to get something out, pay some Mm -hmm. bills with it. I didn't realize um, that Lovecraft had started to write a book for Harry Houdini. Mm-hmm. Houdini had come to Lovecraft, asked him to ghostwrite a, a book about superstition. And then Houdini died um, a few months later. And so that it never got finished. Yeah, that's true. Uh, super interesting. It was for uh, Weird Tales, which Weird Tales was the same uh, magazine that Conan was published in from our last episode. Yeah. The Phoenix on the Sword by Robert E. Howard. Check that out in the show notes. Yeah, very good. (laughs) (laughs) Like we said, it's broken into six chapters. It was serialized in this homebrew magazine. You're introduced to the narrator and his strange friend, Herbert West, who's obsessed with reanimating these 
lab animals. It sounded like he was just constantly in the lab, constantly burning through these animals, trying to perfect this serum. Lots of guinea pigs. Yeah. Act- actual guinea pigs, not yeah. proverbial guinea pigs. Yeah, exactly. At some point, they mentioned that he that he was making his serum out of like using some sort of lizards or something. Yeah, that was later toward the end. At the in the beginning of the the story, they they would go over to a potter's field or to a the village cemetery. Yeah, potter's field is just a pauper's grave. Right. And they would steal these these fresh corpses. They, they would look through the newspaper and look for unembalmed corpses in particular, and then they would pop in, take these bodies back, and in their uh, workshop, they would experiment on them. And the first one that they took back there, uh, West, he injected the serum, and they didn't think anything happened because they went to bed, and then later on, they heard a crazy scream coming from their their lab, and then it said they both fleed into the night, and then their, their house burned down. So they weren't sure what happened, but they said they were always haunted by that night and looking over their shoulder for something. Yeah, so the the house burned down, which they thought made sense because they had fled so quickly, they probably knocked over the lamp. But then the grave of the drowned worker that they had dug up, which they had carefully put back so that it didn't look disturbed at all, it had been clawed up like somebody was trying to dig back into it. Right, that was an interesting thing. That was was one of the first, like, what's going on here? Like, what is it that these, these things that they've created want? Mm-hmm. And actually at the end of that chapter, the narrator says, and for 17 years after that, West would look frequently over his shoulder and complain of fancied footsteps behind him. Now he has disappeared. So this is a uh, 17 years previous. Yeah. The next section, The Plague Demon, that's a really catchy chapter title. You know, that's a page turner. (laughs) And that was the typhoid fever that was causing trouble in their town. And they were not quite doctors, but they were in their postgraduate studies. And they got called into full-fledged medical practice just to help with the influx of illness. And they had a fresh crop, let's say, of corpses to work on. And is this the chapter where they're the dean, basically, you know, that old crusty dean that kept telling them no? Yeah, Dr. Alan Halsey. And so he wouldn't he refused to let them work on any of their typhoid patients. And then he died. So they tried to bring him back. It almost seemed like a vengeance type thing. West robbed his grave and brought his corpse back. Yeah, I actually underlined a line in that chapter where... Like most youths, he indulged in elaborate daydreams of revenge, triumph, and final magnanimous forgiveness. And I thought it's so funny and so human that, you know, we want to exact our revenge, but then still be magnanimous and we're still the, the better person and can forgive. So it, I think that's the, the motive behind trying to dig Dr. Halsey up is that we exact our revenge. He wouldn't let us have at any of the bodies. And then we bring him back to life. We have our triumph. And then we forgive him for being wrong. And so, yeah, very interesting. Now, the way that they brought the the doctor back to their room or his corpse, it sounded kind of like Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, yeah. No, it was definitely Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> these two guys were stumbling back with this third mm-hmm. man under their arm. And the, the landlady saw him and said that they must have been 
deep in celebration or something. Um, yeah, what was it? Something about dining and whining. Right. Yeah. She told her husband that we'd all evidently dined and whined rather well. <laughs> so they take this dead guy back there. They pump him full of the juice and he comes to life and freaks out and beats him up and then jumps out the window and then runs havoc in the town and kills a bunch of people. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he beats him up pretty heavily because it, it mentions West talking through the bandages later in the chapter. Right. So this serum obviously worked, but the, how would you call it, reanimated? The the doctor mm-hmm. that was brought back, he was, I guess West chalks it up to the brain not being fresh enough, but definitely reanimated, went crazy, beat them, jumped out the window, ran amok in the town, killed a bunch of people. And then the there was like a, a phone tree or something to catch him at the end. Like yeah. they would call each other and then they surrounded and... Yeah, so in all, 17 maimed and shapeless remnants of bodies were left behind after his streak, but he only killed 14 because three of the bodies had already been dead. Oof, that's pretty crazy. And yeah, so they the phone tree caught him, Mm -hmm. um, and they shot him but didn't kill him. And then when they cleaned him up before sending him over to the asylum at Sefton, everybody got quite the shock when this monster who had been terrorizing the town looked just like Dr. Halsey. That's interesting. Yeah. The So they capture this guy that was a maniac killing all these people. And then they take him back to the, the it, was it Arkham? No, it was something else. Uh, Sefton. Se- so Sefton. The, the asylum in Batman is named after Arkham, the town that Miskatonic is set in. Uh-huh. So Arkham Asylum is in Batman, but in the asylum in Arkham is Sefton. So I had to consult my notes several times on that because i've kept wanting to call both (laughs) all the asylums are always arkham i bet that arkham was inspired by this oh yeah no it's it's well documented that they got the name in the batman comics it's from the arkham family but it's it's acknowledged that it's an hp lovecraft reference in batman so herbert west definitely did get his revenge on this crusty old dean that they didn't like bringing him back to the dead for the final screw you and then the guy goes nuts and terrorizes the town and i mean if that's herbert west's revenge then he's he's pretty crappy at revenge but (laughs) to cap it all off the end of the chapter herbert west's quote damn it it wasn't quite fresh enough you know (laughs) yeah that's pretty cold yeah oh yeah it's it's very disturbing west becomes more and more the the most horrific thing in the story he's definitely got a descent into madness you know as he's going along with this obsession for the freshest corpses or the most recently dead Mm -hmm. and that's definitely different from some of the other lovecraft stories too usually in lovecraft stories the monster is not a person or an individual, or you definitely don't get to see that person become a monster. Um, if it's some occultist, then it's like, you know, it's some nameless, they've been a cultist for a long time. You don't get to see their perspective. One of the, I think it fits the theme though, for Lovecraft, because a lot of his stories, they're about the human delving too deeply into forbidden knowledge, like with the Necronomicon, mm-hmm, Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. But this seems more, um, like the other stories, when when the characters have delved too deeply, they pay the price. Like it's it's like this: it's you've taken the poison and now you're going to die type of thing. Where this seems to be, I don't know, it's different. I don't, I, I, 
I'm not totally sure how. Um, like the 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 knowledge itself is is what's driving him mad, not because it's terrifying, but because of something about uh, the nature of it. Well, yeah, it's more of a an unquenchable thirst almost. Right. You could draw parallels between Herbert West and some of our modern serial killers who they're constantly trying to produce this outcome, like a product killer who's trying to create this perfect scenario. And the, the closer they get, the more elusive it gets. I think Herbert West definitely would classify as a serial killer, as you find later in the book. Oh, sure. It's some, yeah. Chapter three, six shots by midnight. That was the chapter. This is a little bit later. They they're called to a barn because there was a uh, an illegal prize fight, and one of the boxers was killed. So of course these two doctors say, "Sure, sure, we'll take care of this." And we they take the the guy back to their their lab and uh, pump him full of the juice. And then did they think nothing happened? Or yeah, so there was. A fair amount of racism in this chapter. Right. Because yeah. the, the boxer who died was black. And so Lovecraft describes him like a gorilla, which was horrifying. Yeah. He wasn't particularly kind in his uh, categorization of this fella. No, no. And then later when he, talk, when he talks about the Italian family. <laughs> right. He gives the stereotypes and yeah. Yeah. And so they, they don't think it worked because they think that all of their formulations have been for white people. So they go to try to figure out what changes they should make. And I think while they're trying to reformulate, that's when the guy revives. And does he does he make a noise and disappear or does he just... I don't remember. They mentioned several different... Uh formulations that they pumped into this guy so it was like they kept trying different formulations mm, okay and they yeah. kept mixing and going back mixing and going back yeah so then there's a little italian boy who goes missing a lad of five who had strayed off early in the morning and failed to appear for dinner his mom gets really upset and then she ends up dying from getting really upset as i guess italian women do i don't know <laughs> and so they're searching for the dead boy and then they're hearing noises at the back door so they go down and i actually loved the start of this chapter it, it reads it's uncommon to fire all six shots of a revolver with great suddenness when only one would probably be sufficient but many things in the life of herbert west were uncommon <laughs> so so they open the door and he just unloads his revolver um into this uh boxer who they had revived and out of the the boxer's mouth was hanging the arm of the little italian boy yeah that was a oof let's see i have that paragraph here for that visitor was neither italian nor policeman looming hideously against the spectral moon was a gigantic misshapen thing not to be imagined save in nightmares a glassy-eyed ink-black apparition nearly on all fours covered with bits of mold leaves and vines foul with caked blood and having between its glistening teeth a snow-white, terrible cylindrical object terminating in a tiny hand. So pretty, pretty creepy. Yeah, wild. Both the uh, the visage of the the creature and 
obvious racism of the time. I mean, wow. Yeah. Yeah, a little unsettling. It was kind of hinted in the second chapter with Dr. Alan Halsey. This is now two of the revenants who have gone cannibalistic, Mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting. That's something there. This story is basically describing a zombie. This is a scientifically created zombie as opposed to a, a, a witch doctor type possession zombie. But it's got to be pretty early for that description of a, like you said, a revenant that's semi under control of somebody. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff, though, because this was in 1922. So definitely like the film White Zombie hadn't come out yet. There may have been some writings previously, mm-hmm. but it, it must have just been happenstance. Yeah. 1932 was White Zombie, the film. Not the band from the 90s. (laughs) Not the band. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter four, The Scream of the Dead. So this chapter has another uh, interesting opener. The scream of a dead man gave to me that acute and added horror of Dr. Herbert West, which harassed me for the latter years of our companionship. It is natural that such a thing as a dead man's scream should give horror, for it is obviously not a pleasing or ordinary occurrence. But I was used to similar experiences, hence suffered on this occasion only because of this particular circumstance. And, as I have implied, it was not the dead man himself that I became afraid. So, I I occasionally, I, I, I follow a number of um, uh, gay philosophers thinkers you know people talking from that that perspective and so i when i read a lot of stories i i i tend to think about that perspective and there's a lot of reading into a lot of stuff especially the older the story goes just because you're never going to have a an out and out gay character in a story written during this time period um in the 1920s it's this chapter where i'm like is the narrator gay like i mean there's what is the excuse to be able to, to look at what Herbert West is doing here and say, oh, no, no, everything's good. Everything's on the up and up. It's normal to put a pillow over a dead man's face. It's fine. Like the infatuation with this character? Yeah, he's so infatuated with Herbert West. And you can make an excuse up until this point that it's about the science, that he's Herbert West is doing something amazing, um, something new, and he's involved in that. But then when Herbert West is obviously murdering a man, <laughs> mm-hmm. he's still totally blinded by that. It's like, is there something more going on here? Is their relationship more than just professional here? Not that I'm going to have any conclusions of that. Yeah, I'm not drawing a conclusion here either. But their relationship reminded me actually of Holmes and Watson with the narrator hmm. being the, the Watson role of the intelligent but slightly less... Maybe not slightly less intelligent, but I would call it like a straight man to, uh, you know, not to, yeah. not yeah. to riff on James's comments, <laughs> but like the straight man to a uh, to a uh, bombastic, shall we say, uh, scientist. I was thinking uh, like a Frodo and Sam. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's that same sort of. He goes along with a lot of what West is doing because West seems to have that sort of genius, um, if slightly unsettled persona like like you see where Holmes will do something just completely absurd and Watson has just kind of learned not to question it and go with it because Holmes knows what he's doing and that seems to be the sort of trust in this relationship where 
the narrator is obviously uncomfortable with it and but he feels kind of trapped because at this point if he bails out he's been an accomplice all this time there's mm-hmm. you know <laughs> in for a penny in for a pound right like they're they're definitely making scientific discoveries but as of yet they haven't crossed any line that wasn't the norm for the times uh grave robbing surprisingly was not uncommon in the victorian era for uh medical students well and you could and you could make the excuse too that that the grave robbing the experimenting on dead people i mean they're dead you know who's who's really being hurt here yeah and it was really shocking to see him like hold the pillow over the the guy's face and what is that but up until that moment he had had no reason to suspect that that this guy hadn't been dead when west found him like he said because yeah in this chapter west claims that he's come up with a a new better embalming formula and while the narrator is visiting family in illinois which is actually about as much personal information as we ever learn about the narrator right Mm -hmm. west had met a traveling salesman or something who died on his doorstep and he saw that this guy had no relations or anybody who would inquire after him so he just took the stroke of fortune and and embalmed him with his new formula then when he goes to try to revive him he injects him with something first and then holds a pillow over his face and then goes about the reviving and it is very very shocking yeah he the the narrator talks about the body looking so fresh and there being a uh, sandy colored beard let's see Very little time had elapsed before I saw the attempt was not to be a total failure. A touch of color came to the cheeks hitherto chalk white and spread out under the curiously ample stubble of Sandy Beard. So the narrator noticed that the guy's (laughs) beard was still growing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and and by the end, to make it explicit, by the end, uh, they they are able they revive him. They reanimate him. He he's he is officially dead. They reanimate him, and the this traveling salesman wakes up. And continues his screaming of stay away from me that with that needle, making it very clear that Herbert West had just knocked the guy out or it, had done the killing. Had put him under with some sort of serum and then kept him unconscious for these couple of weeks until the narrator was there. So this yeah. was the actual moment when they crossed the line into actual murder. And what was so confusing about it was that it is it's so obviously murder when he holds a pillow over the face why would you do that to something that's not breathing but he's not right he's not horrified until he finds out that or until the guy speaks and and freaks out about the the needle and so it's like what what did he think was going what did you on? think was going on here <laughs> yeah that's that and that's what i'm saying that to be so for the narrator to be so obtuse um concerning what's going on here right he's He's enabling this guy, and now he's party to murder. Chapter 5, The Horror from the Shadows. At this point, the narrator and West both join up with the Canadian Army to go off to war in uh, Flanders. How common was that, that that people... Joined another another country's army? (laughs) I would think that's pretty strange. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they called it out specifically, though, saying that the the U.S. was always slow to join the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, we were slow to enter both world wars, and I think that there were a 
believe I've heard stories about this happening in World War II. I would assume that it probably happened in World War One, too, where you have kind of the younger romantic guys who, you know, I want to go off and and he actually goes out of his way to, to say none of those sentiments applied to West. He was in it just for the carnage. <laughs> they described him as an ice cold intellectual machine at this point. Mm-hmm. And let's see what he wanted was not a thing which many persons want, but something connected with the particular branch of medical science he had chosen quite clandestinely to follow. So the narrator knows that West just wants easy access to bodies at this point, bodies and uh, limbs, because he kind of shifted into the theory that the limbs could be reanimated separately from the, the body at large. Yeah, that was a very interesting thing. At the beginning of the story, it's it's that the there is no soul. It's all a mechanical process, and it all happens in the brain. So if, if you let the brain decay even a little, then you end up with these monstrosities if you try to revive them. And now he's thinking, oh, well, uh, perhaps the the personality of the person is all through and it has nothing to do with the brain. And I wrote a little note there that, you know, boy, that that sounds an awful lot like a soul. And it's worth noting, too, that um, Lovecraft was a was an atheist and a skeptic. Very outspoken about that. I, I always took his his elder gods as a commentary on Western religion. Like, well, what if there's a God and that God is you know, actually an interdimensional being who wants to eat you type of thing, you know, like um, speculating about a, a darker alternative. And you can see the, the duality of that with the narrator being more of a traditional, uh, a person of traditional beliefs, say, because he, the guy that they killed in the previous chapter, he's whispering in his ear, where were you? Where were you? Or trying to get a response of what did you see after you died? And then clearly uh, West is doesn't think that there's such a thing as a soul. He just thinks it's a mechanical process. These are automatons that can be started and stopped it on a whim. These boys are over in Flanders. West is uh, he's doing his thing. He's experimenting under in, in his uh, army hospital. They described it as he had free access to bodies and limbs. And everything sounded normal other than the the random revolver shots in the middle of the night. And then they also talked about how he had started experimenting with reptile embryo tissue. So semi uh, apropos to like a Jurassic Park where he's taking reptile tissues and grafting it with a human tissue to regrow and re-synthesize some of these things. He just describes this noxious cauldron basically of this this reptile goo that's boiling that he's throwing these limbs into and any thoughts on that i didn't know what to make of it um i didn't know if because it they never like i I didn't i didn't catch that it was to regrow limbs Um, although i know that's what he was experimenting with at the time it yeah it's like the the lizards who can regrow the tails exactly Mm -hmm. so it's like he's he's trying to take these body parts and regrow the rest of the body with the, this embryonic reptile material. Right. So interesting theory in a sci-fi type book from 1922. You know, this was long before DNA, other than like Brian said, just reptiles, lizards, regrowing tails and things. The boys come across the Canadian officer that was able to get them their 
what do they call it? A conscription. So this major, well, as he's flying over to the the installation, his plane gets shot down. Basically, he's he's dead, but mostly, you know, nearly decapitated. He's nearly headless. Now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Wes thinks, hey, you know, this guy, he's he's got it together. You know, he's got the that brain and that nervous system that he likes so well. So mm-hmm. he decides to go ahead and finish the job, take the head off, pop it in the vat of stew that he's boiling up, and then sutures up the body, closes up the neck, starts pumping it full of the juice. He wanted to see if they're retained any connection between the brain and the rest of the body. So he starts trying to revive the body with the head off in the lizard goo. And then they hear a shell coming in uh, right as the headless body starts to reanimate. And it it jerks, which they realize is kind of its death throes trying to get out of the plane that was crashing right before the guy died. And right as the shell hits, they hear from the corner where the decapitated head is, they hear, jump, Ronald, for God's sake, jump. And they can never be sure because of the timing with the shell hitting and everything, if that actually is what happened. But it it's haunted them that there's this, the headless body was still somehow connected to the yeah, head. Yeah, definitely, definitely strange. So the narrator, he's kind of saying he wasn't sure if it was a hallucination or not, but disembodied voices that sounded like they're coming from the stew pot that you know that's kind of weird they again presume that the body was destroyed in the uh german shell fire but they have an awfully high percentage of these bodies that they've revived that they don't actually know yeah exactly they really need to make that stop making those presumptions yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's a bad wasn't keeping score on my end but this seems like they got to be up to at least there's the 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 still alive guy beating his head in the uh, asylum in Sefton. Mm-hmm. There is the very first thing that they think burned down in their their very first lab. There was the the boxer. Did they put? Yeah, they put down the boxer. They shot him all six times and then buried him. And I think the most horrifying thing with the traveling salesman was that you never did find out what happened, but the guy it sounds like it was a complete success. So they brought the guy back Mm -hmm. and then I guess they had to, (laughs) well, that was the first thing I thought about was so, so what now they just murder, like (laughs) double murder the guy. Yeah. No kidding. So that's at least four bodies or revenants that they're not quite sure what happened to. They're pretty sure they buried him. So what's a, what's a A revenant? revenant? What's a revenant? Revenant is, Somebody who comes back from the dead. Okay. There's there's a movie a few years ago called The The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio where he's attacked by a bear and left for dead. And then he ends up healing and coming after the people who attacked him and left him for dead. And so to them, realize that was it's this why guy that movie was called The Revenant. From the dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, learning something. Yeah. It's the quality podcast right. we are. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> if you haven't learned something, then we haven't not done our jobs. <laughs> That's beautiful. I can see that in a needle point somewhere. <laughs> All right. The final chapter, the Tomb Legions. 
West and the narrator, they're back from the war. They have, or at least the narrator has these terrible haunting memories of this disembodied voice and a headless body flapping around trying to jump out of a phantom plane. And this chapter begins with the narrator saying, Dr. Herbert West disappeared a year ago and the Boston police questioned me closely. So that's setting the scene. So they they settle near a graveyard again, but this is an oh, old right. graveyard that's not used anymore. So it's it's not for stealing bodies anymore. It's just because West likes being near graveyards now. And it was a particularly old graveyard in Boston, was right? That? So they're building out or they're digging out the cellar for their lab where they have an incinerator and everything, and they come across a old wall. Mm-hmm. That was from, they think it was like a, a crypt, the secret chamber beneath the tomb of the Averills, where the last internment had been made in 1768. So the narrator finally notices that it's starting to take its toll on West when he doesn't order them to tear it down, but he instead has them plaster over it. And like, we're just, we just won't go that way anymore. There was a particularly poignant passage about how why he picked this particular house. Yeah, what was it? Okay, here we go. West's last quarters were in a venerable house of much elegance, overlooking one of the oldest burying grounds in Boston. He had chosen the place for purely symbolic and fantastically aesthetic reasons, since most of the interments were of the colonial period and therefore of little use to a scientist seeking very fresh bodies. So, once again... He just likes being next to a potter's field, you know? Some people Mm -hmm. like to be by the water. Some people like to be in the forest. This guy likes to be in a forest of graves. Yeah, and so then one evening, West is reading the newspaper, and he uh, gets super upset. Turns out that Sefton Asylum, where Dr. Halsey had been committed, a whole bunch of people had come and released him all led by a big guy who had a very beautiful head. But when they shone the light on his head, he had painted glass eyes and a wax face, and they assumed that some accident had befallen him, and so he was wearing that mask. But he he also carried a, a package from which it seemed that his voice came in some ventriloquist fashion. So when the... Sefton Asylum staff said that they couldn't take the cannibal monster. The leader of this group seemed to signal them, and they all just tore them apart, killed a bunch of the guards, and then made off with Dr. Halsey. And then the text says, those victims who could recall the event without hysteria swore that the creatures had acted less like men than like unthinkable automata, guided by the wax-faced leader. By the time help could be summoned, every trace of the men and of their mad charge had vanished. So, I didn't know that there were actual, like, early prosthetics. Like, if someone had a horrible disfigurement from a war, they would actually make a porcelain or a wax prosthetic for their face. Like, ears or face mm-hmm. or eyes. Or That was interesting to see. I, I vaguely remembered that from... Boardwalk Empire, the HBO show several years ago. There was a sniper that was one of the main guy's henchmen. 
and he had a half a face that was like painted on. Uh, the second thing that the the main guy that was wearing the officer's uniform and spoke out of his uh, his hat box, basically that he was that we think the head was in, is uh, you know very strange. So I could see how that would give give West the creeps after thinking of that. Mm-hmm. So next thing that happens, they the narrator and West are sitting there, you know, like holy crap, and then out of nowhere the doorbell rings. And there's a couple of odd-looking workmen that drop a box off. It's addressed to Herbert West. It's from Eric Moreland, Clapham Lee, and St. Eloy Flanders, who was the the officer that they had um, reanimated six years previous. And then did they just break into it? No, they uh, decided to incinerate the box without opening it. Ah, right, right. Uh, So they, they took it down to the laboratory. And popped it in and turned on the incinerator. And then it says, It was West who first noticed the falling plaster on that part of the wall where the ancient tomb masonry had been covered up. I was going to run, but he stopped me. And so then this horde of silent creatures come in. Their outlines were human, semi-human, fractionally human, and not human at all. And it says the horde was grotesquely heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. And then they silently went up to... Herbert West, and then tore him to pieces and carried the pieces back in through the hole that they had made in the in the wall. And the narrator says, the servants found me unconscious in the morning. West was gone. The incinerator contained only unidentifiable ashes. Detectives have questioned me, but what can I say? I told them of the vault, and they pointed the unbroken plaster wall and laughed. At this point, like, this is the very last part, so... The narrator and West, obviously, quite a shock from the reading of it, quite a shock from the delivery. West says, let's just be done with this and burn the head. Mm-hmm. We aren't sure if this was the actual head or, we, well, we weren't quite sure what was in the box, right? It wasn't. Yeah, we were definitely meant to believe it was the head. So they go down and they throw this thing in there and then the wall starts crumbling. And we kind of veer off. We, do, we either decide... Is the narrator going crazy? Did the narrator actually snap and throw West into this incinerator? And now he's the murderer? Because the narrator has been an unreliable narrator through the whole thing. Not that he's been lying through his teeth, but he definitely has not been, you know. It's either that or supernatural. Like they see this wall crumbling down. There's this whole litany of strange figures coming through. West gets torn apart, but doesn't utter a sound in it. Like visually, it's really uh, striking. You know, as you read this, it's like, holy crap, this is this is really, really scary. Mm-hmm. But then the next day, to make it even worse, is like there's no evidence that the wall was ever touched. And all they know is West's gone. This guy's still here, but there's no evidence that where West actually went. So I don't know. I think given the the supernatural part, like James mentioned earlier, I think uh, you kind of have to decide, is this supernatural? Like, is this break away from the science and the reanimated corpses and this actually happened? Or was it just the narrator fabricating details? I'm kind of torn. Yeah, the, the, more, the more I think about the story, like it's, a, it's, it's definitely the creepiest 
to me of all the stories, just because like we've talked about frog people don't scare me. Um, <laughs> where this, this has a definite creep factor and it, it's got that kind of earworm factor to it of like, uh, where it gets inside your head and you're thinking about it. Like, well, what was going on here? What was this? What was this? Brian, you said you had some thoughts here on this last chapter. So in, in the last chapter, there's a line where their Lovecraft is kind of at the start of each chapter. He, he kind of recaps everything that's come before because this was published serially. So he, he ends his recap talking about, um, major Sir Aaron, Eric Moreland Clapham Lee. There's no way to say that without messing up one of the names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it says that he, which is West, used to make shuddering conjectures about the possible actions of a headless physician with the power of reanimating the dead because uh, Sir Eric Moreland Clapham oh. Lee had done some of the um, reanimation experiments with uh, West and the narrator back at school because they were all schoolmates together. Mm-hmm. That's how they got their commission with him. Oh. Yeah, that's, so, uh, that's an interesting so, call out. So uh, then when it's talking about um, the creatures had acted less like men than like unthinkable automata get, uh, guided by the wax-faced leader, I was thinking that if if he's making his own undead mm-hmm. and they're following him, um, is there something about creating that where he, he has some sort of power over the undead and then West, it, it constantly being pointed out that West isn't aging. Uh, I kind of had this thought rolling around in my head and I, it, like you said, James, it's kind of an earworm because I, I, I don't know that it's right, but I can't find anything that points out that it's, it's definitely wrong. But, was West at one point. And we're, and we're, and, and there's, there are, like, when we think of a necromancer, we think of a, an, a you know, an undead necromancer. There's a lot of D&D t- terminology here that, mm-hmm. that, bring, that conjures all kinds of images and, and, and there's a lot of shorthand ways that we can show that that didn't exist in the, the 1920s mm-hmm. <laughs> when right. this was written. So that it would feel very foreign to us that's I, re- I really like it. Sorry, go ahead, keep going. Well, I was just thinking about if if West was himself reanimated and possibly even reanimated the narrator, mm-hmm. which would explain why the narrator is constantly doing things that he's super uncomfortable with. If he if West oh. has some sort of automata control over him or automaton, not automata, it's not plural. Come on, guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and so then something with the the way that West was trying to create them was he was not getting the control that he he did with the narrator or whatever and Eric Moreland Clapham Lee was able to get that control over his undead and so you have almost like this warring faction of undead undead leaders or undead leaders of the undead and it's it's kind of a harebrain scheme i'm i'm not sure that it's what lovecraft was thinking but it certainly f- seems to fit and it, it it also explains why west never aged and we don't know enough about the narrator to know whether he did or not right yeah that's that's an interesting theory so yeah it's a bit harebrained but i like it <laughs> <laughs> i like it i know i like it i thought it was interesting too where it started right right away in chapter one they're explaining that this all starts because 
West believes that uh, life is a purely mechanical thing, that there's no soul. Yeah, holding with Hegel that all life is a chemical and physical process and that the so-called soul is a myth, my friend believed that artificial reanimation of the dead can depend only on the condition of the tissues, which I thought was really funny because the word that Lovecraft insists on using all through the story is to reanimate, which the animate comes from the Latin animus, which means soul. So to, to put the soul back in is, is mm-hmm. what they keep on doing. And if there is no soul and they're putting something into it, that that was kind of where I was thinking, well, if they're sure. <laughs> mindless automata, are they putting something else in with these chemicals where now they have, you know, some sort of additional almost telepathic control? And then we see that with the, the headless body where there's some sort of telepathic connection between the head and the body even when they're separated after they're reanimated. If you put it in that context, it definitely seems like the Canadian officer definitely succeeded where West had failed. And he Mm -hmm. had full control over these revenants, which I guess makes him a lich at that point. Is that the, the term? So you can, you can only defeat him by playing him in a game of joust. Or you have (laughs) Arya stab him with the dragon glass. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Recap on Herbert West Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. I would definitely call this one of my favorite uh, H.P. Lovecraft stories. He definitely has a deep catalog of the strange and the kind of things that you really don't want to bring up at cocktail parties unless you want to be the weird guy or girl. (laughs) You know, I think this story really encapsulates kind of the, the creepiness of HP Lovecraft. I think if you want to go a step further, the, uh, the horror at Innsmouth is good. It talks about Arkham. It talks about Miskatonic university and it talks about the Necronomicon. If you're into strange things, it's definitely (laughs) something worth checking out. I think. I definitely felt like this uh, story is the most accessible. You can follow along with this character. See, you know, you can see they they start off in one place, they end up someplace else. It had one hundred percent less Cthulhu than I was anticipating. So yeah, I, I liked this. I didn't love it, but I liked it. As a non HP Lovecraft reader, are you? more likely to read more Lovecraft after having experienced this, or is this the dip in the water you needed to scare yourself straight? (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't. I read it through twice because the the first time I didn't really find it very creepy or disturbing at all. And I would say that I'm, I'm more likely to try out another story or two to see, see what else is in there. But yeah, it's, it's good. His other stories are much more, strange frog people man yeah like if you're into frog people or nightmare scapes or well it might might help me figure out one of the characters i'm playing is is being held captive by some frog people right now so yeah (laughs) i need to figure that out cool well that was herbert west reanimator by hp lovecraft we'll put all the information in the show notes and thank you for sticking around for our decidedly longest episode of the gentleman get lit <laughs> you say it's gonna be the longest but you're gonna you're gonna edit this down to like nothing and <laughs> 
what was it? I want to ask, but I just, I love, I love the mystery. It was uh, if, aquarium if, filters no, no, for no. kids' If fish you tanks. wait until the end, you find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in after the credits. <laughs>